0: Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. A question that has arisen in my research around imagination, and also in the recent interview I did with Stuart Candy, was what would it look like if a local, city, or national government were to create a ministry of imagination? If the revitalization of the imagination were felt to be so important that its protection, enhancement and cultivation need a bespoke department, one that cross-cut other departments, attempting to raise the imaginative capacity of the entire administration. It was an idea that really stuck with me. Gabriela Gomez-Monte is one of the only people I've come across who has actually done that. Her background is in the world of arts and culture, having worked as a journalist, documentary filmmaker, visual artist and experimental curator. She now leads Laboratorio para la Ciudad, or Laboratory of the City, which is to all intents and purposes, a ministry of imagination in Mexico City. Founded several years ago as an experimental arm, creative think tank for the Mexico City government, which reports to the mayor. When she very generously gave me an hour of her time, I had so many questions. The best place to start, it seemed to me, was to ask how the laboratory came about, and what it does
1: out of the blue i got an offer of the incoming mayor of mexico city about five years ago to basically propose a new type of city department. and the very intriguing part of it was that basically he gave me free reign to invent a new type of office from scratch the only thing that he asked was that it be high on on a possible reinvention of how government collaborates with with uh citizens so basically what does a new models of participation look like and what the new models of governance become. Uh, uh, so basically, to be honest, at the beginning, I, I thought I really did not want to work within bureaucracy. I had kept government as far away as possible <laughs> from my life, except for voting every, every so often. Um, but then again, I was offered to a fellowship where I would have plenty of time to actually think about it. And it suddenly... To my artistic heart, it felt like a really fantastic provocation of the mayor of, you know, the fourth largest city in the world, and one of my obsessions since many years back, which is Mexico City, to basically be able to invent a city department from scratch. What would it look like? How does it function? How does it insert itself less in the bureaucracy and more in the city, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I, I thought okay like let's do this as a speculative exercise. I'm sure it will be outlandish enough that they'll say no but then again it will be a prompter for my for my fellowship and I can have all sorts of meetings around this and then just function as as, as the axis of my next four or five months. Uh, so to make a long story short, I came back from my fellowship. Um, I got the, the, the new government had already started and I, called, I got called in out of the blue uh, to present the last version of what I was proposing. And then to my huge surprise after the meeting, he said, okay, great, go for it. They, you will get a call and we will be announcing the existence of a lab for the city in 10 to 15 days. And so then 10 to 15 days later, I was shell-shocked in front of high, 500 people, mostly men in ties, which was very different from my former world, as well as uh, a lot of journalists, and the mayor was announcing the existence of Laboratorio para la Ciudad. Um, so five years later, I am black and blue from the extreme learning curve, but it's also been, strangely enough, one of the greatest adventures of my life. And Laboratorio has become, as I mentioned, the experimental launch slash creative think tank of the Mexico City government. And one of the interesting things The lab is the composition of the team that is very much in tune with the importance of imagination and spheres where it it seems that there would be a desert of it uh, where, you know, creative bureaucracy that we just got a prize for seems to be a huge oxymoron. Um, But basically, my team is composed half of it. There's 20 people, average age, 29 years old, more or less, which is also more or less the average age of Mexico City, funnily enough. Um, So I like to think that on one hand, we're actually prototyping what government could look like for a new generation that on one hand does not necessarily have a lot of trust in institutions or in governments, and I think this is something that is happening worldwide, but on the other, we're seeing this interest and this, uh, just like all of this energy that surrounds civic projects and them wanting to sink their hands into the city and to be able to actually help create the city around them. So how do we deal with this and can a lab become a place where instead of this being an oxymoron it becomes government can become a funnel into the city itself and and the place where they can actually engage with all of these subjects uh, that the government engages with because there's nothing of the city that isn't in a certain sense uh, touched upon by government um so the second thing is the composition of my team that i was mentioning half of half of them come from Disciplines that you'd imagine within government, such as urban geographers, data analysts, political scientists, social scientists, uh, civic tech experts. And then exactly the other half come from um, arts and culture, the humanities. So working hand in hand with them are also artists and designers and filmmakers, architects, social innovation experts, activists, philosophers, etc etc. and everything that we do sits in between and basically this this is very much on purpose it was one of the most difficult coming togethers of the lab because we all came from very different languages and from in a certain sense structuring our worlds and our disciplines in a way that is not necessarily compatible but i've always been incredibly obsessed by the potential transdisciplinary practices knowing as well that if, if we don't design the transdisciplinary spaces and conversations right there is the great danger of everybody watering down their own language and their own discipline um instead of creating synergies just because again like we come from such different fields that, that hold such different values um but at the same time i have the feeling that it, modernism has left has left its stent in the way that we think about cities and government so we're still thinking i think under metaphors and paradigms of um the city is a machine the city is a factory the city is made to be fast and efficient and productive When yes, that can be an important set of values, but at the same time, we're, I think, losing sight that cities in a way were an answer to first questions of societies of how are we gonna live together? How are we gonna move together? How will we be healthy together? And that all of those questions, in many ways at their heart, have something that is not necessarily productive (laughs) or swift or efficient, but has to do more with the way that we make meaning individually and collectively, and in a certain sense, because of that, we've become not only intrigued by the physical infrastructure of the city and the data uh, block by block that surrounds the city that, you know, the, the urban geography department of the lab is very invested in, but also about how mind anchors to matter, like the, the, the symbolic infrastructure of the city, the way that the micro territories and the, the small communities add up or don't to a larger narrative of Mexico City. So in many ways, we feel that the humanities need to be present again. Why? Because first of all, we're seeing, I think, with the latest election, Brexit and beyond, um, that we are not necessarily completely rational creatures. Like there's a lot of gut in it and there's a lot of feeling. And I have a feeling that if we don't start addressing that as well, and if we pretend that everything is based on fact and data, we're losing out on a huge, part of how we have created the scaffolding for realities because, I mean, many of these imaginaries and, and imagination in general and, again, like the way that we've made meaning and, and, and tell ourselves our stories would seem to sometimes travel at a different uh, scale and a, and a different wavelength, if you will. But it's actually many times the, the, um, the place where reality gets spread. So how do we deal with that? How do we bring that into account? And how does government actually in any way use this as a prime matter of the type of societies that we want to create? And hence rethink government not only as a provider of services and the one that receives the complaints of everything that is not working well, but regain that political sense and that political imagination that government is that place to have a conversation about who we want to be, both right as well as in the future and who we have been and and in certain sense dig deep into the urban dna if you will um that comprises both the built and physical environment but also kind of like the social energy that circulates around it so could you give us i'm a, not sure if that was too wide
0: no no me that was and tell me
1: if you wanted me to be shorter
0: no no that was fabulous <laughs> I, and I wonder if you could give us a sense of what what you've done during that period of time what what's kind of come out of it, or, you know, what, yeah.
1: Absolutely, so I'll give you an example of how we try to layer our work and how we try to work on different domains, because um, the reason why I'm not only researching these urban and social topics through the lens of the humanities is because I think that the, this tension-filled and hopefully productive conversation needs to take place at the crux of many disciplines and many ways of viewing and entering the city. Um, So basically, on one hand, every project that we do at the lab goes into very deep research in terms of uh, spatial analysis. Uh, Mexico City is the fourth largest city in the world. Our biggest resource, I do believe, is the sheer diversity of the city because, you know, in, in terms of urban DNA, the combined possibilities of the city, just because of everything and the vast difference that it contains, is actually quite amazing. But unfortunately, because the way we've articulated our society, I have the feeling that that difference, instead of becoming a repertoire of gargantuan possibility, actually becomes an Achilles heel in terms of inequality, division, etc., etc. So there's a lot of things that we need to heal, and I think a lot of links to be made between the spaces that are not necessarily articulated or talked to each other or being able to figure out how to mobilize the resources across the city. So on one hand, first of all, figuring out that Mexico City, just to name one example in terms of uh, the analysis of spatial justice that we've been doing. Um, we found out there, that there's uh, 5 million kids in the metropolitan area and 3 million kids, city proper. This is, you know, children under 14 years of age is one of our analysis for these numbers. So imagine like, this is a whole Denmark or whole Finland of people under 14 years of age and no city planning has been done around children. A, B, when you think of Mexico City, the last thing that comes to mind is a city of kids. So, you know, there's also a a lack of, of being able to imagine the city that we already are (laughs) funnily enough. So that, that that creates a gap in our understanding as well as a gap in our focus. Um, And then one of the things that we started researching was how can we think about the right to the city for kids with, which is in our new constitution, as well as rescue the right to play. That is actually a law that we passed a couple of years back, but that we have not put into effect. So we've created tools at the lab where we can see block by block the concentration of kids across the city. We can then cross that with indexes of marginalization and segregation across the city as well, and then figure out in a certain radius uh, the intensity of... Of public space and green space that they have access to, or the lack of thereof. So we've been figuring out that, let's say, Iztapalapa, which is one of our boroughs, has almost half a million kids and has le- less than three square meters of open space in in that same borough. Uh, whereas other places have a third part of the the children's population, but have 52 square meters of of open and green space uh, per uh, inhabitant. So basically, this means that there is no way that we can think of Mexico City as a whole, but we have to think of it, yes, visions for a megalopolis that pertain to us all, but at the same time, we need to sink down into the micro-territories and understand a much more granular level, both what it looks like in terms of its societies and its urban forms, and then be able to do things around this. So these types of tools are letting us enter a very precisely, spaces of the city and know that you do not deal with Las Lomas, for example, that is, you know, as green as, as the best of the green cities get, with Iztapalapa that has incredibly dire conditions, uh, a lot of social violence, and it's a really a, a very intense place for children to grow up. Um, um, so that that would be kind of like the the more rational side of the lab and how we really want to be very Method, like create very precise methods of, of being able to enter the city and how we make decisions and how we work with other city departments but at the same time with the pretext of the new uh, mexico city constitution the mayor entrusted us with several tasks and one of the things that we proposed was creating a survey called uh, imagine your city which is basically the first survey we've done on urban imaginaries so we also wanted to understand not only the objective city that we have a lot of data on but also the subjective city how are people relating to to their territories and and to Mexico City in general. So we ask questions such as what are the three first words that come to mind when you think of Mexico City? What are the three things that you value the most? What are the three things that pain you the most? How do you imagine the future of Mexico City? What did the government need to do to get to that ideal future and what did you need to do? So we have 31,000 answers uh, across 1,400 neighborhoods in Mexico City. Since we let out an army of people into the streets, it's actually very ev- evenly distributed between um, gender, ages, uh, social, like economic divisions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's been an incredibly interesting tool for us because now we can navigate the city also through these subjectivities and and figure out really interesting things, especially dealing with the futures, which were open-ended questions. And certainly we're finding out that even though we were prompting for positive futures, we mostly got back dystopic futures from the population, like more Mad Max, the city is going to run out of water, we're all going to die type of thing. And so then comes an onslaught of questions for us, is should government care about the fact that people are not imagining an alternative that is not uh, uh, catastrophic. Um, Should we care about the subjective way that people are relating to the city? Should we be able to create policy not only about what we know for a fact that is an issue in certain neighborhoods, but also what people, were perceived to be an issue or perceived to be a value and found that interesting things that even though Mexico has been cutting um, the budget for culture every every presidential term and suddenly we're figuring out that even in the poorest of poor neighborhoods, people value culture above everything, even education. So what does that actually entail for the type of cities that we're creating? Um, we we've also come across um, several other questions such as how are we democratizing imagination because so many times we think about you know democracy in terms of um, of sustenance if you will of access to water access to food access to jobs but what happens with access to possible futures what happens to access of resources Um, and we've had several really interesting collaborators such as Carlos Cruz who used to be part of uh a gang, actually a leader of a gang back in the 90s, and at one point in time a lot of his friends got killed, and he said, okay, this needs to stop. And so instead of being part of the gangs, now he has one of the more interesting organizations in the world for getting people, and young people, especially out of gangs and into other spaces. You know, and one very provocative conversation with Carlos, uh, he was telling me that even the, the things that the government is doing in terms of crime prevention are basically criminal, pre-criminalizing kids' And young people from certain neighborhoods saying, okay, like, we know you will grow up to be a bad apple, and you know, so you don't kill me or rob me at one point in time. We're going to create all sorts of social services around you. Um, when that's actually not the way that we should be going. We, how can we think of the city rather of as untapped potential? And it's actually in benefit of everybody for that potential to be able to take on its fullest form as well as to circulate across the city and become an active of the city itself of that human capital if you will but no longer understood under like if you have a degree or not but rather what are the things that each us bring to the table and so we became very intrigued through all of this research also in rethinking the role of government and again less maybe as a provider of services uh, that to be honest i'm not that intrigued by but more what would it take for this new role of government especially now that we need to go deep into governance and that we know that governments can't do everything on their own of catalyzing citizen talent, of being able to see, like these these articulations that we're lacking, or the ones that are that are that could be uh, even further pushed, and to be help articulate. The city as a space of knowledge, as a space of resources, uh, very entreated by urban commons, for example, because I mean that's that's also you know putting the the, the, the urban and and the city resources. For up for grabs so that people can also use public space, use, use new type of civic uh, spaces, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as one way of doing this on their own and of creating public value from from their own spheres, I think is one of the more interesting conversations that cities should get into. Though I still think we're a little bit stuck in, um, in our modernist paradigms, if you will, and the way that we're, we're thinking about both cities and governments.
0: And I wonder, what's your sense, you mentioned about how when you went out to people and asked about the future, you got lots of dystopian visions back. I wonder what your sense would be of the state of health of our imagination in 2018.
1: I think uh, the state of imagination in 2018 is quite paradoxical in nature, um, because I'm and and I see this in Mexico City, I think that we are lacking a a vision of possibilities. Um, And as as many political scientists have said, it seems that capitalism has has left us with a sense that there is no outside, there is no alternative to these monolithic realities and global realities that we've been creating. Um, Where I find that there's hope is possibly no longer in the big utopia as, you know, creating a, a huge alternative to capitalism, <laughs> if you will, but what happens with the heterotopias in places as diverse and as vast as Mexico City. Um, and so right now, to name just one example, we've been researching with Pablo Landa, fantastic anthropologists, uh, different forms of government, governance and public participation and, and even social movements that have sprung across Mexico City in the last 30, 40 years and that have been quite fundamental in in the way that small communities are working in. Um, And Mexico City is so just like so different in all of its territories that we've been finding really interesting examples of communities coming together and creating their own tiny social political systems, if you will, very much akin with what you were mentioning, of figuring out on their own, like, what are the economies? What do we want? How do we relate to governments? Can we create new notions of housing? Uh, can we think about uh, co-ops and, and social economies and uh, social solidarities and all sorts of things? And these are happening in tiny corners all across Mexico City. Our question now is, and I think this is a really interesting question for, for imagination, is partly because they have not necessarily been visible. There has been a, an advantage that they've flown under the radar. And in a certain sense, have not necessarily been co opted by larger systems. On the other hand, I think that if we don't spell these out and give them more visibility, at large, we keep on being stuck in the, the reigning paradigms because we don't know that this is possible. So I'm quite curious to know if the rest of Mexico City found out that other, te- uh, other, uh, other communities across Mexico City were doing this or that, how would that actually influence? a learning curve of us being able to take on bits and pieces to make up our own versions of social and urban realities uh, from the micro territories onwards. So one of the things that we've been experimenting with lately um, is trying to revamp uh, participatory budgets in Mexico City for these purposes, to make them more into social R&D instead of what they are now, which is... Uh, just like more of the performance of democracy where people end up you know, painting a wall or buying lighting or getting police cars without policemen. <laughs> um, which, you know, it's, it's fine, but that should come out of other budgets because participatory budgets in Mexico City, and we have $5 million a year and funds more than 2,000 projects, were in their origin actually sought to be of ways of, of local governance, of the community being able to identify on their own what were some of the challenges and opportunities of their neighborhoods and then being able to generate um, governance structures around them with the help of government. So imagine $10 million and and 2,000 projects for social R&D, if this works correctly, and we've been finding uh, positive deviance as, as a friend would say, of saying, okay, like, it's not working well in general, but what are the places where we have projects that have been quite successful? And why were they successful? So working the other way around and we found out, that us say, I'm sure you heard that uh, Finland about three years ago, all over the news, that they had like this super interesting experiment of, of creating senior homes that were also daycare uh, for children. And so creating all sorts of really interesting social dynamics where everybody ended up benefiting. It was exponential in its impact. Well, this actually happened more than eight years ago in Mexico City with participatory budgeting in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city, and this was actually a citizen-driven project. And we've been finding many projects like this that actually spell out different ways that the communities could uh, create public value for their spaces. But the thing is, news doesn't travel. In other cities, when one project comes about, let's say, you know, Boston remakes its, its public market, and I have the feeling that it has a way of being able to change the sense of self of the city. In Mexico City, really, really, really interesting things happen on many corners, but since we don't necessarily know about it, or because it's very difficult to own the city in its entirety in our head, let alone in our in our physical body, um, it becomes very difficult for these ideas to travel and to build up on, on each other. We also have like an amazing history of communal practices, uh, everything from agriculture. Culture, to, to economic co-ops, to indigenous ways of doing governance and democracy, but we have not analyzed them deeply enough. Because in, in in terms of imagination, unfortunately, we've been chasing dreams and notion of progress of the first world instead of looking at our social composition in the eye and being able to build on that. Um, so one other example of some a project that we're going to be working on next year with one of Mexico City's foremost biologists is in Xochimilco, uh, which is the the rural part of Mexico City, and uh, it's, it's actually one of the places that has been doing agriculture in the same way for almost 600 years, so it was the way that the Aztecs planted, like, made little islands on the lake, and that are in, incredibly efficient uh, ways of creating organic produce. So, you know, if you want to talk about urban agriculture, maybe it's not necessarily rooftops in New york of ten thousand square meters but actually hectares and hectares of floating agricultural gardens that were that used to be insanely productive and that actually inspired the aquaponics movement mm-hmm. that as you probably know is one of the the more contemporary uh, urban practices for agriculture but that we've lost our we're or rather we're losing our historical knowledge because you know the big companies are coming in and convincing the chinamperos that we call them to use fertilizers that are in turn contaminating the river, that are in turn making the produce less healthy and not organic, that are in turn uh, making the economies of scale not not function because people are not looking for like you know they, they, we could get economies of scale if we went for organic but not competing with uh, bigger producers of, of tomatoes, let us say. Um, so in a certain sense, I have a feeling that we need to both dive deep into the past to rescue an imagination that we've been losing because of the of global imagination. And at the same time, we need to be thinking about how that DNA pertains to our possible futures and to keep idiosyncrasy alive and know that those futures don't necessarily have to be uh, the future of New York or the future of London, but actually futures a la Mexicana, if you will, <laughs> futures um, for and from Mexico City. Mm. Um, so I think that this is something that, if we don't take as, as a challenge, it's very easy to be, be co-opted by other types of uh, other types of, of imagination. Mm. If
0: so,
1: that makes any so, sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so you mentioned that um, uh, part of what you're looking at is around telling stories of what's already happening, reclaiming the history of the place. I wondered, you know, that the, the when Stuart mentioned the ministry of imagination. So, firstly, do you see what you do as being a ministry of imagination? And secondly, uh, what would your if if other places, other other cities, if 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 the mayor of London, for example, got in touch and said we need a ministry of the imagination, or even if the even if the national Mexican government got in touch and said we need a we need a ministry of imagination on a national scale. What would your advice be? Where would you start? What would they do? What would their brief be?
1: So to your first question, um, in many ways, one of the, the, the exercises that we've been most intrigued by is how do we think about the creative ethos that is so alive and present in arts and culture and this capacity to make reality malleable? and bring that ethos into government and into fields and places that are not necessarily thought of as creative. So how does that creative ethos not only pertain to creating an exhibition or a performance or a temporal urban intervention or an artist plopping a statue in public space, but actually into deeper questions of and and, and deeper articul- social and urban articulations. Um, so this has been quite interesting because all of the projects that we, we've been doing always have that component of saying, How do we instigate imagination around this? Because I think there's a very practical thing that we need to think about more deeply in terms of government that we've been calling legible policy that I might turn into tangible policy, which is many times uh, when new policy comes about, we... Since when there's like quote unquote costs, such as let's say reducing speeding, reducing the the maximum uh, velocity for cars in certain neighborhoods, um, we complain like hell. We hate it. We don't want to do it. We won't see how we trick the system. We change our license plates. We spray something on it so so that the cameras read the license plate. All of this is true without knowing that this is actually. To our own detriment, like uh, traffic accidents, to give you a very specific example, are the leading cause of death in children and adolescents across Mexico, and the second in Mexico City. So this is, I mean, it's it's dire circumstances, but the thing is we're not necessarily being able to create a space where people can understand complex systems, like how one thing pertains to another thing, how something as small as reducing speed actually has an effect on our day-to-day life, has its consequences, but also has its futures. So how do we start not only being able to give ways people can digest uh, complex systems, but also understand their agency within them? How do we let them enter the story as well, especially when we're thinking of, of governance structures, where it's not only the place of governments to create better societies, but it's the place for the whole of society to do so? Um, so, on one end, I think that there, there's a very practical thing that we've been jumping into saying, how do we actually create uh, these, these spaces where people can envision um, what the challenges at hand are? And then there's a, a part that I, that's, that's much more speculative, if you will, of basically trying to think that imagination is not a luxury, and that might be government's role, as I mentioned before, to. Think about political imagination and the way that we are provoking discussions and the type of projects that we create that many times uh, can scale not because of you know these methodological more engineer-like ways of scaling but because you create objects of desire, if you will, that will then go on to take on a life of its own. And so that's something that we've been we've been trying uh, quite a bit at the lab. And we also actually inaugurated because of the survey that I mentioned a department that's called Urban Futures that is basically trying to think out loud about how do you create uh, a vision for a megalopolis at the same time you, that we know inherently that it cannot be a monolithic future. So what do these heterotopias mean as well in terms of, of how uh, communities are imagining themselves for it? Um, that said... Some of, like, some of this is very practical. Some of it is theoretical. I still think that there is work to be done in being much more bold about how governments can think of a ministry of our imagination. And that I think we're only just beginning that conversation. And I think we've we've had um, very good intuitions and very interesting intuitions of what could be possible. But I still think it's one of those blue oceans, if you will, that I have the feeling that either people that are Professionally doing futures studies and futures thinking and future making um, have only just put a dent in how that feeds back into the system and how that feeds into government and into society. Um, we, at, the, at one point in time, I had a fellowship with the Institute for the Future, and one of the things that I proposed and then no longer had time for it, was creating an office of fictions and futures, of basically putting into into play that our, our fictions are not necessarily um, uh, um, not necessarily antagonistic to reality or the opposite of reality but again like many times our futures are actually built on our fiction so how do we deal with that and engage with that a little bit more deeply and we've also been bringing artists into many of our projects that deal with mobility that deal with public space etc cetera, etc cetera, to always try to get that sensation of of um, the future to come through very specific projects. So one of them would be our interventions in public space for children, that even though they're very small, have been really giving us interesting clues towards what 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 does it mean to create spaces with the community, especially with children involved, and to have idiosyncrasy be part still of the way that we we intervene public space with the community in, in mind, um, and coming up with new type of new typologies and urban forms instead of just thinking that we need to copy paste playgrounds or copy paste the way that we do public space, et cetera, et cetera. So that has been quite intriguing. Um, but again, like to be honest, to sum it up, but you, you've given me good food for thought that I should think about a little bit further because that was the intention in, in the beginning. And yes, it has been important, but I do think that we still need to take it 20 steps forward. We really need to just like intensify that and um, and explore it much more deeply. The thing is, when you work, come into government, the expectations are such of being practical and efficient mm-hmm. <laughs> and service oriented uh, that in a certain sense, I think we lose sight of these other explorations that need to happen with a little bit more openness. So in fact, in the next evolution of the lab, um, it it's one of the things that I will be working much more deeply on and hopefully be able to be slightly more bold and outlandish in the type of explorations that we're doing. Um, the,
0: the, um, um, so that's the first part. Sorry, sorry, carry on. Tell me, tell me. Uh, well, no, I No, I, no, I was going
1: to jump into what would I do, what would I propose to other cities if... Uh, yes, yes. But, but please tell me if, if you want me to, to if you no, want to no, throw perfect. another question
0: my way. No, that's, that's perfect. That's, yeah, do carry on.
1: Uh, and so, so if I had to advise a, another city uh, on a ministry for the imagination, I think the first steps would be very akin to what we've done. I, I would definitely look for transdisciplinary groups. I would look for creating um, a, a team of people that are willing to explore the gaps, the gaps between the, the gaps between the conversations that are uh, that are being had the gaps between the conceptual spaces that we've already created and jump into new ways of thinking about cities, because I I still think that these worlds are very divided and will need translators in between. Uh, I find very provocative and exciting stuff happening in the art world, but that have no influence whatsoever many times in the ways that we're creating realities um, in our cities and our societies. And on the other hand, I find that there are people that say in mobility that have great ideas and very practical ideas of how a transportation system should move. But then again, they're not taking into account the social components. Um, they're not taking into account that in many ways cities are about those social dynamics, even more so than the physical and built environment, and that if we we keep it we keep it reined in and only think about ourselves as in charge of the physical infrastructure. We're not necessarily thinking about the true essence of cities, which is in the end, that those social dynamics that get layered upon the physical city. Um, so in a certain sense I would keep it open. I we, we have a new project coming up in November November that's called The Experimentalist Cities, Political Imagination and Social Creativity, which is interviewing quite a few people across the fields that have been doing these hybrid practices um, in different corners and in different ways, sometimes a little bit more slanted towards arts and culture and the humanities, sometimes a little bit more slanted towards urban practices um, or social practices, but that I think have in their seed form this idea of those heterotopias that I was talking about of people experimenting with different ways of being in the world um, that take into account the the practicalities, but also that take into account uh, the type of imagination that is coming out of those those practices, the type of meaning that gets created, how we latch on to these projects or don't, how they leave us indifferent. Um, And what I, I would love for Mexico City, for example, is instead of having like a a concrete idea, especially from within government of what this looks like, is how do you open up space and how do you sign on possibility instead where people can finish those sentences in their own way and basically help us create a mega urban lab, if you will, of people experimenting with different forms across the city. So this I think means having the city become an enabling space. It it means thinking about the cities it means, I think, thinking of policy and thinking of the role of government and the way that we interact with society in a very different fact. Um, so I think the next step, really, rather than saying, OK, like this is what we imagine and this is government telling us how which way we should go, is how do you have the city in and of itself become that enabling space? How do you democratize imagination? How do you democratize possibility? How do you relate and think of talent and the role of government vis-a-vis um the creative capacity of its society. Um, so I have the feeling that, that we first would need to go into a lot of research and a lot of experimentation on, on small, smaller micro scales, which is something that we have been doing at the lab, and then blow that up into into larger scales. Um, because I mean, I know pe- places such as Dubai have been doing interesting, interesting projects in terms of imagining the future, but then again, is Dubai too locked up into a certain eco- social economic system? Uh, let's say, like I, I remember in Dubai, they had this thing of, of the pop-up city of, you know, that you could just like, kind of like 3D print, print uh, cities and buildings. That's actually the modernist dream of 40 years ago that already exploded in our hands. <laughs> so, so basically, I have a feeling that the social imagination really needs to take. Uh, it needs to take a much stronger space in the way that we've, we're, we're thinking of our futures from the institutions and out. I think that does not answer your question, but the thing is, I think it's a question to be explored and not necessarily to be answered yeah,
0: well, <laughs> in a certain sense. And I wondered, I wondered, listening to you, if, if uh, sort of unpicking it, uh, the whether what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years of becoming more and more specialised in different departments and different disciplines, becoming more and more separate and isolated from each other has undermined the imagination of, of organizations?
1: Absolutely. One of the things that we found is that the tension between the ways that we view the world and our paradigms are the places where another reality can unfold because the synthesis many times can be even antagonistic to the place where it started because it's a meeting point. So I have the feeling that the only way to think about uh, futures and imagination and all of these things that we've been talking about is from a systemic point of view, which is more emerging of discipline, but that becomes very difficult in a certain sense to manage. And I say that that word, um, I, or rather, I don't say that word lightly, because I, I actually think that we've been going about wrong about our vocabulary as well, because you know, in, in a certain sense, managing cities and managing realities gives you a much more totalitarian, if you will, in controlling view of how realities get created, when I have the feeling that we need to be able to work with fluxes and flows and, again, social energies that have a way of taking life on their own, and that you need to intervene in very different ways and from multiple perspectives. So that's also something that we've been trying to deal with um, within Mexico City government. And without meaning, we've become an in-between space where where people look for us now when, let's say everything from, from um, managing difficult discussions between civil society and government, let's say the Uber versus taxi debate, I actually was the one that negotiated the cool thing. And instead of thinking about this under more of a, um, practical terrain of practical negotiation is how do we frame the conversation in a way that becomes productive and it's not going to mean it's going to be an easy conversation because we, we actually have the largest fleet of cabs in the world um, but it means it w- it w- we can at the very least start digesting what we want and where our, our, our conversation should lie to make it slightly more productive um, so so definitely I definitely think that the silos have that us deal of harm hmm. and that that's not what reality has looks like nor how it functions and even even though it eases our minds and our brains I guess for, for having more digestible uh, forms and little pieces of that reality in a certain sense it doesn't necessarily do what it needs what needs to be done uh, um, just the day before yesterday and this is a this is something that you might want to interview him, he, and he's here in Mexico City right now, Etienne Turpin, he's the director of Annexact. Act, uh, he's a doctor in philosophy, but also has, um, you know, a, a crowdsourcing for crises program in Jakarta, and does books and all that. But, till, but yesterday we were, or the day before yesterday, we were on a panel together, and Etienne was talking about catastrophic versus anastrophic futures. And talked about how uh, catastrophe is the past coming undone in the present. You know, just like everything converging and, and imploding or exploding. Whereas anastrophic futures is how do you actually design for that place where our different futures will converge? And so how do you actually jump into that space of possibility that you're foreseeing that certain elements will be coming together and design for that specific place where things that have not necessarily been touching will suddenly come together, um, and I think it's a really interesting way of actually thinking about the place of imagination and the, uh, the place of in, re, intervention in in reality.
0: Mm. And and you, uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does absolutely. And um, uh, do you have you g- given much thought in the lab about? Um, about how this relates to education in the city and schools and we have a schooling system that is well certainly i don't know about in mexico but certainly here we have a an education system that seems to be very effectively destroying the imagination of uh, young people through stress and testing and here's a problem there's only one solution to it Um, i wonder if if there's a, a degree to which you're thinking about how we can be how young people can be coming out of school as as best equipped as possible to play their role in the city becoming more imaginative.
1: I absolutely agree. And unfortunately, um, we have a lot of work to do in that field uh, in Mexico in general. Um, Again, like we are with this importation of notions of progress. I think the the prevailing paradigm that we think is the future is more of, of the charter schools system which is not bad but basically is very monolithic in ways of saying oh yeah we should be graduating physicists and mathematicians and left brain people um, instead of really thinking about what what it looks like to be creating a sense of agency and opening up the, the, the capacity to imagine other alternatives for unforeseen futures and for shifting realities um, we try to because I think if that's the place that's one of the places to, to definitely work in. Um, but the thing is the schooling system in Mexico City, the public schools, are actually not a local mandate, which is rare in Mexico City because mo- most everything is the mayor's mandate, um, but not public schooling. So we tried desperately to find if we could figure out how to get ourselves into the system and, uh, and, and find the Trojan horse but we're unable to. Mm. So basically what we did was take to the streets and rather start developing uh, tools for government to use every time that they're working with a community or creating new public space of how do you bring in the kids into the decisions that are being made in, in government, especially in this first stage that pertain to them. Um, and how do you create a sense of agency with the streets of Mexico City as school, if you will just because we could not enter the educational system, which is v- much more rigid, actually, than the one in, in, in the UK, like much more limited, I think, in its in its sense of potential and its scope and the abilities that we need to be giving kids um,
0: for the future. And so after, after several years of, of, uh, of the, the, the lab and working with the mayor, and the mayor, who very bravely and imaginatively said, here you go. Gabriella, create something, and then said, "Okay. How? What's his? What's, what? What journey has it taken him on? Do you think? What? How has it? How has it changed? How he uh, governs the city? What sort of impact has it had more widely in the city's government? Do you think? Are you? Are, are you viewed as the what? sort of the weird department of of strange uh, <laughs> people, or are you seen as being an integrated part of the?" Uh, of the local governments. Yeah.
1: I think, I think both. I think uh, we, and, and in many lovely ways, actually, um, we're definitely seeing like a weird department, but instead of that being like, I don't get you, so keep away. It's, it's rather been a conversation as I don't fully get you and I don't fully know what you do, but I'm intrigued. So if you come knocking on my door, I will, very probably open up a space for a conversation and for and to work hand in hand um so in a certain sense i i think it's 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 opened up um a conversation that, that did not exist before that ministers that have been working in their fields many times for for 20 years or so uh, are suddenly not antagonistic to working with, for starters, with my team that, as I mentioned, is young. So, you know, imagine a minister all set in his ways. Because, I mean, just a minister of mobility oversees the travel for 14 million people a day. So, I mean, you can imagine (laughs) ministers in Mexico City are not necessarily like ministers elsewhere. We have a bureaucracy of 280,000 people, and that's just like the government bureaucracy. Um, So, seeing them working hand-in-hand, with my young and talented team and working in very different ways has been, to be honest, an incredibly joyful experience. In terms of the mayor himself, um, I have been very impressed how he has let me run with things that were very important to his agenda because I I get why he lets me work in marginalized communities and create different typologies of public space. Because if that explodes in our hands and it's difficult for it to do so, I mean, in in the worst case scenario, it's uninteresting. Um, which for us is kind of tragic, but not for the rest of the city or for him. No? Um, but he's also let me propose things for things that are that are incredibly visible, sometimes incredibly delicate, and he has let me run with it. So I'll, I'll give you two examples. When I was mentioning the Uber versus taxi thing, so what we, what I proposed to him, um, because I was really worried, especially about the social conversation that we were having around us, less so about if Uber should stay or go, uh, but rather why are we having such a polarized and ugly social conversation when the, the faction of, you know, quote-unquote contemporary Mexicans that want Uber to remain are now ostracizing and stereotyping the, the cab drivers and they're all murderers and dirty and this and that. And I think that, you know, Latin America has a huge step with the social divides. So that was what worried me. And the prompter was rather how do we create... A citywide conversation in a city is divided and diverse as ours, especially with such a hot topic that there were protests every day. There was violence. I mean, after France, we were the most violent place for this this uh, debate. And so I wrote the mayor on WhatsApp and I said, you know, Mr. Mayor, um, I, I, I want to propose a methodology to see if we can mature this conversation and make it more productive. And he was like, OK, well, who has done this? And, and I was like, nobody. And then he said, how do you know it will work? And I said, I don't. And there was silence for five minutes on what's up?" And then he said, okay, go visit the general attorney and tell him I, I gave you the green light. And then they let me free for something that was on the front page news every day for the last three months that with a huge political cost to his government. Because as you know, Uber ha- has you know very <laughs> a slightly nefarious ways of heating up the conversation on purpose to basically force... Governments to regulate them Um, and we created this whole methodology that included a digital debate quite similar to what Taiwan did about a year or six months later that has you know become quite um, a a new paradigm of dealing with public projects but it had not been done yet when we did it Um, and the other example would be crowdsourcing the Mexico City Constitution uh, which is his most important legacy to the next government and which is the most forward-thinking Constitution in the world And it was the same thing. You know, we have Iceland that had, at one point in time, crowdsourced their constitution, but it didn't pass through legislation. But we don't necessarily have that many examples of such an important document that is basically the legal as well as ideological scaffolding for our future, talking about imagination, over 100 to 200 to 500 years, Mexico City into the future. And when I offered or asked, rather if we could crowdsource this and create new new ways of bringing in more citizen voices into an already very interesting process that they that have been created he let me run with it as well and so talking about imagination uh first of all a being able to create a methodology that you know the testing field for some things is, is is quite safe but these testing grounds for these other projects are are the world itself with a lot of press with a lot of pressure with all of the political, very convoluted, very intense dynamics uh, proper to a city of our size and of our polarized political and social systems. Um, so that, and in a way, I think changed changed us because it became a possibility. And it's a possibility that not only remained on the side of, oh, well, maybe in the future this could happen, such as with uh, what I was telling you about the right uh, for uh for uh, the right to the city for kids and the right to play, because that is still being slowly spun out. But these are realities that already happen. Mexico City already crowdsourced its constitution. Mexico City already created a digital debates to try to figure out a way to have a production, productive city-wide conversation and great policy, um, bringing in different voices instead of taking decisions uh, locked in a room without anybody's knowledge. Um, the constitution I, I might point is quite interesting in terms of the subject at hand because it's ruling it's ruling the right to the city. Which is very beautiful because we can go back into the seventies and rescue Lefebvre and David Harvey and basically think about the ultimate right to the city being a being the right to imagine a city and then make it come true. Because first the city we create our cities and then the city in turn creates us. So you know this this a right to imagine and a right to To make real, I think it's such a beautiful thing to have. And at the same time, since they came about it from the human rights faction, and it becomes just as important because the right to the city is this idea that be you a three-year-old kid, be you a single mother, be you a 60-year-old person with a terminal illness illness that wants to have um, assisted death, be you a transsexual person, be you a gay marriage that wants to adopt, be you a, uh, a migrant without any papers, be you a deportee, the city has to guarantee all of your law, all of your human rights and and create a space where you will feel safe and where you will feel fulfilled. Obviously, this is very Utah, but I think that's the place of constitutions. And for us, the Constitution of Mexico City has has also had that other space where it's became become a great excuse for us to try to take some of these terms and see what it means to bring them into reality. So, you know, because many times, obviously, laws um, or principles uh, can remain on paper. But then again, having a legal framework and having that be able to help breathe those realities becomes something that can help very much create a momentum within institutions. And, um, and so, you know, the Constitution played the double role of us having had a part of imagining different ways of, of creating one, as well as now being... Fuel and and prime matter for us to now imagine how we make that become real.
0: You um, um so so you did the sort of when when was the constitution done and was it done in the same way as Iceland with people taken off the electoral register and and in that way.
1: So. The, the when was it done? It was done last year and it, it came into legal existence two days ago because we have a new Congress and part of the job of the new Congress is actually to make the to activate the constitution, if you will.
0: So, was it done in that same uh, so laws? now it's, secondary it? laws? It's, sorry, sorry, was it was it written was it created in the same way as they did in Iceland where they chose people at random? No, no,
1: no, no, no. so basically. Particularly, the way that the Mexico City Constitution was created, I think, is quite interesting because one of our our big reflections in these last five years, um, since we have the mandate of participation, is that first of all, if you are too idealistic about participation, you will you will get your heart broken in many ways because, it, yes, you know, the tyranny of the majority exists, and many times people come together to actually um, to actually, instead of creating public value, to do the opposite, to put minority rights at risk. I mean, you know, democracy is not a perfect system. But then again, as they well say, you know, the, the, we, cure, we should cure the ills of democracy with more democracy and not with less. So one of our, our, the things that we ha- have had to work with because we work in, in reality is that it's, it's, this is not a theoretical academic paper saying like, oh, public participation, this and that. We actually have to deal with the effects of what we create in terms of spaces where the – the public to come in, no? such as the two examples that I just gave you. And one of our, our, our big reflections is that we need to be a lot better at creating participatory scaffolding, if you will, of designing the participatory process, and that it should not be simple minded. I mean, I think Brexit was a very point in case where you know you don't do referendums of yes and no for such a complex issue, such as the yeah. UK leaving uh, their European Union. Yeah. So the Constitution is a really great example of the way that of the complexity that needs to happen for true participation to take place and for that 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 uh, Institutional these or rather participatory design really take into account how to create public value instead of just performing participation So basically what happened is that the concept, Mexico City has only had a local... But I don't know how long I should be about this because it's super interesting, but it's super long to get into the details. What do you think? Shall I give you the super short version of it or yeah. shall I go a little bit more into depth so you understand kind of like why the different components of that participatory practice came into play?
0: No, I'd like to hear that, yeah.
1: Okay. So basically Mexico City has only had a local government since '97. When we had a huge earthquake in 85, uh, where more than 10,000 people got killed, big, big crises. Um, The president disappeared on us, and the city regent appointed by the president, as well as local government at that time, was seen as inefficient. And that started a whole political and social movement of, of people from Mexico City demanding that we have locally elected representation, that we could not be a city of this size and of this importance and be under the thumb of federal government. But we had to elect our own mayor. Um, so that started after 85, it came to being in 97, uh, which was a huge step ahead, but even even with that, we had a lot of our powers curtailed by uh, federal government. So. so you know, we used to call, be called Mexico de Ciudad de México, bueno, DF, Distrito Federal, which is a federal district. And so we we had the legal standing of, let's say, Washington, D.C. We had no representation in federal Congress, for example, um, and tons of stuff that were still under the thumb of federal government. Notwithstanding with one hand tied behind your back, since we've only had a left-wing government since the, we, we had our first mayor, locally elected mayor, Um, Mexico City, with all of its laws, travels at a completely different speed than the rest of the country, and is one of the most progressive cities in the whole continent, I believe. Uh, You know, we have gay marriage, abortion laws, euthanasia, we just passed uh, medical marijuana in the Constitution, and all of these things of of a socially progressive, human rights-based city. It's not perfect, but it's interesting, and where the rest of the city is lagging behind by decades, actually, no? Mm. So uh, when the mayor comes in, one of the things that we knew was uh, something that we needed to work on still was upgrading the autonomy and the of Mexico City vis-a-vis the federal government. So a lot of political negotiations took place, and uh, there was Packs to be done because you know, federal government has always been until now, it will change next year, but until now, it's always been right wing, federal level, always left wing on a local level. So that has created a lot of tensions, but also a tension that has helped Mexico City become very firm about the city that it wants to become, which is an interesting thing. Talking about tensions, um, so one of the things that got negotiated is, is like finally, okay, Mexico City gets a new constitution, finally, yes, we get legally. Upgraded into who we already are for the rest of the country. Um, yes, we will have more autonomy on every way and every form, and we will be able to define uh, the DNA of who we have been and who we want to become, like the more ideological aspect, if you will, of, of the Constitution. But the, that said, uh, basically, the President demanded that the, um, the Constituent Assembly, if that's what it's called in, in English, you know, uh, an assembly that gets created just to create a constitutional uh, document. Uh, the president decided that only 60% would be popularly elected and the other 40% would be by designation. And that, that de- designation would take into account not the local representation and the way that we have voted locally, but federally because this is the capital of Mexico. So, you know, very flawed thinking all across the board. And people were incredibly angry, basically saying, like, how can we start a new era of our democratic life with very undemocratic practices? Because, you know, it's not enough 60%. We need to have 100% voted popular. No, sorry. We need to have that that assembly be 100% voted by the people and not designated by the government because besides the numbers actually gave the, the PRI which is the leading you know, right now president is in the presidency leading right wing party it gave it undue representation in the local congress that it's never had in Mexico city so it was completely overrepresented in terms of how mexico city voted um, so basically the mayor did something that i think was very wise which that instead of him drafting the so big, sorry let me go step a little bit back So one of the the things that got negotiated is that the mayor would make the first draft of the Constitution, give that to the, the Constitutional Assembly, and then the Constitutional Assembly would take several months to read it very thoroughly, to make amends, or to change it entirely, depending on what they wanted. And then that would be the thing that got handed over to the federal court. The federal court would decide if it was all legally possible, in terms of our our federal constitution, and then that would become the constitution of Mexico City. Um, So the mayor did something that I think was very wise, that instead of him and his team writing the constitution, he created a group of 28 people that was incredibly interested because this included some of the leading left-wing political figures, some of them 80 years old that have been fighting for, you know, a social agenda for Mexico City for ages, but it also included people such as Lortin, which was the first um, woman to marry another woman in Mexico City after we passed gay marriage. Mm -hmm. It also included Carlos Cruz, uh, that I just mentioned, who used to be a gang member and is now getting people out of gangs. It also included people with disabilities, it included writers, it included intellectuals, it included urban planners and included experts on right to the city so it was a quite amazing group of 28 people that had a lot of clout with civil society and the mayor actually ran with whatever they proposed so that actually resulted in an incredibly sophisticated um, document full of human rights and full of a sense of not a, a city that's that has a capitalistic drive, but that has a social drive at heart at the very least in terms of its constitution. That said, and where we come in is that uh, first of all, because of the way that the, the constitutional assembly got created, as I mentioned, it disenchanted a lot of the experts, but the constitution in general left uh, the no- normal citizens completely indifferent. It was like, so what? Like, What does that have to do with my life? I and mean, then especially left a, young, a younger generation completely indifferent. So basically, we were tasked with creating several ways of normal citizens, and especially a younger generation, being able to give input to the the 28 people. And we had several things. One of them was that you could actually create a a presential event to to talk about any type of subject that you wanted to, let's say, indigenous rights in Mexico City which is a true example and then the communities would gather together they would be able to publish their event on the platform created by the mayor's office well we created it but it was, it was um, published by the mayor's office and you could tell, tell people what it was about, people could join your event and then the document would be published on the on the, on the constitutions platform and somebody from my team and from the general counsel's team was um, summing up all of the the prevalent points and findings of all of these get togethers and feeding them back into the group of 28 people. And we so we had more than a hundred uh presential coming togethers and that feedback became interesting. Um, the other the other way that we gave information back into the the, the 28 working group was uh, with a urban imaginary survey that I mentioned. So telling them, you know, these are the things that are worrying people. These are the things that people love this is what, how they imagine the future. These are the first three words that come to mind and really think, helping them think through and bringing in the voices of 31,000 people that we thought, okay, like this is a mechanism to get the non-experts in and it's just a general thermometer of what people have in their brains and their hearts. Um, and last but not least, we created a mechanism with change.org of saying, how do we, instead of inventing a mechanism, why don't we go to people where they already are and try to mature a process because that at least really change. Many times it's very simple, like, oh, well, I want more trees in my neighborhood, and that's about it, um, but making it much more substantial, so we created with the director of change.org Mexico, who who actually comes from an activist and human rights background, and a super interesting guy. We created a mechanism to mature all of the, um, the citizen proposals. Uh, we put it out there, and we broke records across the world, so we had more than uh, like half a million people uh, participating, beating even Malala's uh, movement on change. And that resulted in 14 petitions going over 10,000 and 50,000 signatures that could meet both with the working group as well, depending on how many signatures you signed. And that resulted in 83% of the proposals that were submitted through this mechanism being now part of the the Mexico City Constitution, and so we now have these really interesting things, such as a 17-year-old that could, did not even have um, the right to vote because he's too young to vote. We vote at age 18. Now he has his ideas in within the Constitution. We have, you know, a young journalist um, that had absolutely no political background. He gathered almost 40,000 signatures and now has become an advocate for environmental cause across Mexico City and is knocking on everybody's door because he felt so responsible. It was just out of uh, like, oh, well, you know, I'll do a... Uh, my neighborhood needs this, so I should propose it for a city, like an environmental law. Um, so I'll just propose it for a city. I sat him with my urban geographer to deepen his thoughts and change work with him to actually get it into uh, a better form as well as, well as the, the general att- uh, attorney's council once it had passed certain amount of signatures, how does that go into its legal form as well? Um, and so he's completely changed his life because he feels a responsibility of having 40,000 people backing his project. And we have 60 year olds that now have access to 50,000 people with a touch of a button, which is more people that many of our, of our elected officials sometimes don't have access to. So really interesting things happened. Um, mm-hmm. And and became part of the document that got turned in to the uh, uh, constitutional assembly, and that again 83% actually made it into the final document that came into legal birth a couple of days ago.
0: Wow! Wow! What an adventure! Um, it was
1: a huge adventure. It was it mm-hmm. was actually quite quite interesting, I must
0: mm-hmm. say. So I'm that's all my questions. I just if you if you had any thoughts about. Imagination and its importance, and how to how to nurture it. But I haven't asked you the right question. For, if you had any last thoughts,
1: well, maybe it would be a short one since I've been so winding. Um, but my my very brief thought on the importance of imagination is that I think we we still think of it as a luxury, and we still think of it as divorced from reality, as if imagination and reality had no touching point when many times it's the basis of the future realities to come and hence should be i believe taking taken both very seriously as well as very playfully um and that i think in terms of cities we should be thinking not only about building cities for the human body but also for the human imagination what does it mean to create environments that prompt imagination that signal possibility And that basically make presence, especially in the more marginalized communities of our societies, that being able to generate a sense of agency and possibility of molding our own futures and our own lives and our own environments is one of the most important assets that a society could have because we need to distribute this. We're saying that Lone players are not enough. That monolithic uh, ideologies or utopias are not enough. So I believe that the more that we distribute the capacity to imagine different futures, the better off that we will be in general. Um, and that it will it will also be, I think, a, a place to come together. Like I, I think talking about our our future and what is possible is a space where we can also deal with our our present tensions.